Welcome to the great conversation where ideas matter. Ideas shape markets, ideas change the world. When I'm thinking about the role of a leader in many of my podcasts and conversations, I've had this, I rarely have been able to get a hold of someone who is highly respected in the human resource community uh, because she has an excellent way of dealing with the management team and understanding their deepest needs, their gaps in performance, and most importantly, how to engage their employees and themselves in a narrative, a sequel to, if you will, their existing stories uh, that can bring them to a level of performance they've never had before. And I was able to start stalking Angela Scapello of the Scapello Group uh, through her LinkedIn posts, her blogs, and her uh, podcasts. And she's an amazing voice, and she's with us here today. Angela, great having you. Thank you. I'm honored, actually, to be part of one of your great conversations, Ron, so thank you. Absolutely. Let's just dive right into it. I'm going to, I'm going to quote Emerson again, because I always do. And in fact, you'll hear it in many of my podcasts. Most people live lives of quiet desperation. Angela, has that been your lifetime experience? So I think from my experience, what I see a lot of times is people getting in their own way. And so they're either afraid to take a risk, they're not sure that they have what it takes, or they let stories that people have told them about themselves or they've told themselves guide how they make decisions on a whole range of things, whether it's personal or professional. And so the work that I do is to help people see that there's a different way of, of showing up in the world in a way that feels comfortable to them. And by comfortable, I mean that resonates with them, that they feel they're being authentic. And I once said this to somebody, you know, call me Pollyanna. I really believe that people deserve to be happy at work. I really do. And I've been honored and privileged, and I feel very fortunate that I've had almost every job I've ever had or role I've ever had. I loved what I did. I liked the company, the people I worked with, what the business was involved in. And that's a great feeling to get up in the morning and want to do what you're doing. Well, the uh, esteemed uh, Gallup group uh, just put out a survey and it says more than ever, people feel disengaged at work. And they actually have a statistic on rising active disengagement where people are in a sense, hurting the company uh, by their behavior. And so, so it's not getting better out there. And whatever leaders are learning, they're not applying it necessarily, or we wouldn't have that kind of survey results. So, so I'm going to throw something at you, so a little bit of a curveball. Uh, my first child had uh, my first grandson about six and a half years ago. He's about to turn seven. And I remember telling my daughter, you have about seven years. And she goes, what do you mean? And I go, deeply embedded 
in my grandson's brain will be his study of your behavior, you and your husband's behavior. It, it, they won't learn from your words. They'll learn from your behavior. So be a student of your behavior, your nonverbal behavior as you're raising him. And he's about to turn seven. And I reminded her of that. And I said, now from now on, he's going to be learning mostly from his environment and others, not necessarily you. Does, does that resonate with you? Do you see that maybe some of these stories we told ourselves are stories we learned when we were very young? I think a lot of them are. I do a lot of work with female executives and I speak at conferences in terms of, you know, the brand called you, how to self-promote in a way that feels comfortable or helping women negotiate, et cetera. So I think that there are certain social norms that some of us, you know, were raised with. And there's research that shows that there can be a backlash that, you know, men look at women's behavior differently than they look at the behavior of other men. However, we can't let that stop us. Um, you know, I think when I was growing up, the idea was, what could I be, right? I could be a teacher, I could be a nurse. Um, you need to see it to believe you can be it. And so I think that's the beauty of the internet now and the beauty of all this open communication, that there are roles that you can see, that you understand people can make a living that way. But I think that we all tell ourselves narratives and I think we often lie to ourselves. So I'll give you a good example. I was working with an organization in Central America. I do that as part of the work I do with a, a not-for-profit. And in this situation, the business, which was a very successful business in El Salvador, the father wanted a legacy. He wanted to leave the business to his son. His son, who had been educated, uh, undergraduate and postgraduate work in the United States, had a very successful job with a company in the United States. And he came home to El Salvador to be the next CEO so his father could retire and move on. And when I was working with the organization, it was obvious that the father was not letting go and the father was getting involved and the father was, you know, overriding the son's decisions. There were a lot of people who had worked many years for the father. So if they didn't like what the new CEO said, they'd go to him. If there was a client problem, the father would, you know, go over his son's head, go directly to the client. And so in a meeting with the son, the father and the executive team, I said to the father, what is it that you want? And he said, I want to leave a legacy. I want this business to continue. We employ a lot of people. You know, it's good for the community. It's good for the country. I said, okay. I said, my understanding is that you, and then I went through all the things I just told you, you override your son's decisions and all this stuff. And I said, is that correct? And he said, yes. And I said to him, what's the benefit to you? And he looked at me and he said, there's no benefit. You know, he needs to run the company. I need to leave a legacy. I want to step away. And I said to him, you know, with all due respect, we don't do anything unless there's a benefit. So what could the benefit be to you? And he got quiet. And I said to him, could the benefit be that you still feel important? And he got quiet. And he said, I still feel relevant. I still feel needed. I said, okay, 
I said, I have no judgment about that. I said, but what does that cost you? And he said, my son never learns to be the CEO. The employees don't recognize or respect him as the CEO. And then he looked right at his son and he said, my son leaves and goes back to the United States. I said, okay. I said, so that's the default future that you're creating. How do we create the future that you want? Because I think, Ron, sometimes we, the story or the, the lie we tell ourselves is that the decisions we're making today are not creating our future. That somehow there's today and then there's this ideal future that's going to happen somehow on its own. And it's not. And until you reach that hell no moment, like I don't want that to be my future, then you're ready to make different and better decisions in the here and now. Mm -hmm. But you've got to confront that narrative. Mm -hmm. And often the things we don't want to admit are things that we're not very proud of. Right. I need for him, a man, you know, in his sixties in, in Latin America to say, I still feel important. Right. I still feel needed. I still feel relevant. Okay. How can we, how can we recreate those feelings without creating this default future of your son leaving and the business not surviving? Hmm. What we didn't learn through that example is how you got called in. Who called you in to that company? Uh, so I am on the board of an incredible organization called the Business Council for Peace. It was started about 20 years ago with the idea being that more jobs means less violence in conflict-affected companies, countries, excuse me. So the first country that Be Peace went into was Afghanistan and Rwanda and helped people accelerate the businesses that they had already started. We kept a presence in Afghanistan, obviously after the recent situation, no. Um, and we eventually finished our work in Rwanda and then we moved into Guatemala and El Salvador. Our business is about having people like myself or yourself, people who have skills to be what we call scalanthropists. And we create classes of fast runners or maximizers businesses that we vet very carefully, that we know that with a little additional fuel underneath them, they can accelerate their growth. And in countries like El Salvador and Guatemala, right, they can create more jobs and raise the lives of individuals, their families, and a community. And we've got an incredible track record of increasing revenue. And we actually, you know, grew businesses during the pandemic. And so I teach a learning lab when the class is first assembled. And sometimes the program runs for six months, 12 months, three months, depends. And my learning lab is around, you know, being an effective leader, leading with emotional intelligence. And then I go in country when there wasn't a pandemic or now virtually, and I meet with about five or six of the fast runner senior leadership teams. And in those meetings, they often bring something that's been sparked by my learning lab, right? How do we communicate better? How do we figure out whether or not we are 
We've got the right people in the right roles focused on the right things. You know, how do we do succession planning? You know, how do we deal with conflict? So having been to my learning lab, they have a sense of what I can help them with. And in this situation, that I that was the presenting problem, right? I mean, I've literally had brothers sitting next to each other. A lot of these are family businesses, which I think are fascinating, right? They're a world unto themselves. So that's how I was working with this particular company. So as you've worked in the nonprofit and for-profit sector, what are the most, is there a trend line? Is there, what are the most common gaps in leadership that you find that are holding companies back from reaching their true potential? Let me think about that for a minute. So I think there's a number of things. I think one of them goes back to something we had talked about, um, which is how do you get employees aligned behind a strategy and a purpose so that they are engaged and they want to, in essence, operationalize the strategy? Right, because a great strategy without buy-in is a stalemate. Right, achievement orientation without empathy is burnout. Right, so I think sometimes leaders can be somewhat clueless about what is going to motivate a team. And I won't name names, but I remember one time, and I've onboarded five first-time CEOs. I sort of have a niche specialty of helping first-time CEOs step into that role successfully. Got really excited and said, I think what we have to get people excited about is that we're going to go from X amount of revenue to Y amount of revenue. So excited about that. It was almost like a mantra, you know, it'd be almost like taking a company that wanted to sell itself saying like, you know, three X in two years. And I said to him, because, you know, I think after you've been in the business world a certain amount of time, sort of very comfortable speaking truth to power. And I said to this individual, and why will that matter to rank and file employees? I said, it might matter to us because our bonuses will depend on it. But how does that inform their day-to-day work and their decisions? And why would anybody get excited about that? Right? Would they run home at the end of the day and say to their significant other, guess what, you know, if that was the thing, you know, three X in two years, we're getting closer to three X in two years. I mean, it's understanding, right? That's the difference as Marcus Buckingham says between being a checker player and a chess player, right? If you're playing checkers all the time, the pieces look alike, they move in the same way. You've got to understand a chess game that everybody has different drives and needs, right? And you've got to be able to understand how to move that organization in a way that has meaning to the people in the organization. So So I think that's one of them. Yeah. One of the most pervasive gaps then is the disconnect behind the leadership narrative, if you will, and the employee's narrative. Okay, this is good. So then what I'm kind of interested in is now, how do you help them create a powerful joint mutual narrative? How do you do that? So some of it is about understanding what 
individual, team, and organizational aspirations look like? And, you know, aspirations are very different than goals. Goals, I think, tend to narrow the conversation and the perspective, right? And aspiration, to me, when you say to somebody, what's your aspiration for this year in the business? Sort of is like opening up like the camera aperture, right? And you get a very different response. And then you unpick that conversation, right? What does, what does shared success look like to us, right? What are, what are we going to say? I just did this the other week at an offsite for one of my clients. It was a newly formed management team. The CEO had a relatively newly formed management team. And we said, you know, what's our sense of shared success, right? And we, we did it in, in groups of two and then bigger group and then the full group. Like if we meet a year from today, and we look back and we say, this was a great year. What will we have accomplished and how, right? So it goes beyond the numbers. That's a piece of it, but that's not the only piece of it. And I think that's part of it is understanding that, you know, we bring our emotions into the workplace, right? We're much more... Um, aspirational. I mean, you get excited about things that you aspire to, right? If someone said to me, Angela, no one's ever done this before. You'll have a real impact, right? And it'll make, it'll have a meaning, right? And I said, well, what is it? And they're like scooping out the Pacific Ocean. I'd be the first person to sign up, right? It's like, am I going to have an impact, Right? Can I see the through line between what I do on a daily basis to what it is that we stand for? So funny, I was curious when I was thinking of the great resignation, the so-called great resignation, and uh, people probably for the first time in many cases getting over their fear and, because of another kind of fear and taking the chances you're actually encouraging and many others are encouraging them to take, right? People need to stretch and get out of their own narratives to achieve their dreams. Um, but I was thinking about that. Let's, let's imagine for a second, you and I are inside a company. We want to create that shared success narrative generally, but then we get into specifically the hiring manager. How are we going to first approach a future employee? How are we going to onboard them? How are we going to persistently, if we are doing that in the hiring process and the onboarding process where we're aligning narratives, how do we do that and turn you know, the personal performance review and, and into a refresh of that narrative. What are, what are we doing from a human resource management standpoint to inculcate that in everything we do around each and every employee, not just generally? Or is that the wrong thing to do? You tell me. So I think the most important, like I always tell managers, I've, in fact, I'm getting ready to kick off a management boot camp for a client. I always tell managers probably the most important decision you make as a manager is who you hire. Mm -hmm. And I say to them, if you don't believe me, just bear with me for a minute. Think about a hire you made that went terribly wrong. And after a couple of weeks, you're spending most of your time dealing with that employee. Clients are unhappy. 
the team is really upset, the team is not meeting its goal, people are disengaged, they're upset, there's infighting, or they're just shutting down, right? And you can feel the energy drain as I explain this to the person. I said, now think of the right hire. Within a few weeks, clients are giving you feedback about this person. This person's making contributions, collaborating. I said, that's the impact of a good hire or a bad hire. So I think the first thing is that we've got to be really rigorous in how we hire. And I know that people are desperate to hire people and they don't want to take the time. But I think Frank Sinatra once said, marry, marry quickly. No, marry slowly, divorce quickly. And I always say, hire slowly and terminate quickly in the sense that if you know this is not working, right? And there's no intent on the person to help work with you to make it work. So I think the hiring decision is really important. Now, I also step back and I say that we don't, we don't ask, I think, an important question at the beginning of looking to fill a role. And the question has got to be, why does, why does this role even exist, right? We get very tactical. We talk about roles and responsibilities. Who is it going to report to, right? I think the first question has got to be, why does this role even exist to achieve what on behalf of the team, the business, or the clients? And then if we know why the role exists, then what kind of things will this person do what kind of qualities are we looking for, right? Is this somebody who, are we going to be looking for somebody who is much more um, comfortable with taking risks or somebody who needs, you know, routine and regular work or needs more rules and regulations? Do we need somebody to break the pattern? Do we need, some, you know, so I think there's a lot more thinking that has to go into what we're looking for. And the biggest mistake companies make is that you and I are on a team, Ron, okay? And so is Joe. And so is Mary. And we have a boss, right? And then Joe leaves and we go to replace the role that Joe had. But the reality is you're new to the team. You brought some skills that that role uses, right? It's like you can't step into the same river twice because the river's moved on. I think anytime somebody moves or things shift, you have to relook at what do we need, right, to operationalize the strategy. And so I think that's the first thing. I think the other thing then is that we have to be much more creative about onboarding people. Right. I think we have to, you know, Margaret Heffernan in a great TED talk, which is why it's time to uh, forget the pecking order at work. She says something I believe really strongly, which is relationship before task. Right. When I say to people, think of somebody you trust implicitly, explicitly, someone you can be vulnerable with, somebody that you can tell your deepest secrets that you can take a risk with. And then I say to you, I bet you don't know that person very well. You're like, no, of course I know this person well. But I've seen organizations put teams together, give them no time to understand who they are as individuals, and then expect them to achieve wonderful things, right? I mean, the need to belong is greater than the need for security. You know, am I going to be humiliated if I make a suggestion? Do I feel comfortable admitting that I don't understand what's going on? So I think that the onboarding has to be about helping people 
know what relationships they should foster early on, you know, creating ways for them to connect. And then I think as, you know, as you move along, you know, a performance review should just be a conversation. You know, what's working? What have you learned? Where do you want to be stretched? Here's what I was, you know, expecting. You know, here's what still needs to be done. I think it's a conversation, really, and a recalibration. If you're going to teach leaders to have relationships before assigning tasks, and part of that magic in developing that relationship is actually getting to know possibly, and I'm going to ask you if this is appropriate, the deepest desires. Even when, even when, if you can get to this level of trust, even when those deepest desires might mean a day that employee may leave. Are companies prepared to act as stepping stones for their employees and get into a relationship with them where they can understand that they're they're actually, you know, they're actually a uh, startup either inside the company that is to the next level of performance and alignment and engagement, or or it's okay also to be a stepping stone elsewhere as well. Are they are we prepared to start acting that way as companies? Well, I think if we're not prepared, right, we've got to acknowledge it happens anyway, right? I remember somebody once saying, you know what, a CEO once said to me, well, you know what, if we spend all this money on training these people, they're just going to leave. And I said, okay, so what's the alternative? We tell our clients that we have longstanding employees, but they're pretty stupid because we don't invest in their learning and development. I mean, just the, the logic of it makes no sense. Right. I think there's a couple of things. I think, first of all, that, you know, sometimes the simplest questions elicit the most information. So I did a a Zoom get together for something. It was in the political arena. And I told everybody, this was all women because it was a woman candidate. And I told everybody who I invited, be prepared to share the answer to these three questions. How do you hope your friends speak about you? What are you proudest of, personally or professionally? And what's your your guilty pleasure? By the end of that hour on the Zoom, I knew so much about those women. How somebody says they want their friends to talk about them, right? Is there aspiration for the person that they want to be and be seen as? I mean, the three questions, fantastic questions. How do, how do your, how do people who know you speak about you and, and what are you proud of the most and what's your guilty pleasure? But the centricity of those seem to imply that, that at our core, we're not interested in money or things. We're interested in relationship. I think we're interested in connection. I think that's what it's about. I think that's why the pandemic, even for introverts, has been difficult because we yearn for connection. We want to be seen. We want to be heard. We want to be understood. And so even in that last question, what's your guilty pleasure? You know, I I found that there was a thread, which was so many of these very highly successful women that um, 
that they loved the Hallmark Channel movies. And what I learned, and these are really so many of them like, oh, my God, I do, too. I'm glued to the TV around Christmas time. And what it said to me was lives that are complicated, complex, full of demands, full of middles, not beginnings or endings that we these women love those stories because they have happy endings, because people, you know, things work out at the end. So I, I think that, you know what, having the right answer isn't to me you know, that important, but having the best questions always is. Oh my gosh, Angela, you know, the fact that you and I haven't spoken in the 20 years I've been doing this and you're literally repeating things I've said for the last 20 years. And, and, and what's really cool is you started a business as well as serving nonprofits where the centricity of you is exactly what you just said. And that is that is such a cool thing. What is it like to be at this point in your life and career to know that you're living what you preach? Yeah, I think that feels great to embody what I really believe in, right? So that when somebody, even in a situation that's difficult, right? Like you and I, let's say, are on a team and you want your CRM system implemented that you used to have at your other job. And I want mine because I thought mine was really good. You know, to ask a question for which we don't have an answer, one of which is, and why is that important to you, Ron? Right? Or what does success look like? Right? What's the common ground in this? If we could agree on a feature, what would be the one feature we would agree on? I love sentences that start with, if we could right? If we could win that account, what would be the first thing we would need to do? Because it doesn't tell you that you have to. It just says, imagine if we could, and then your mind just opens up. This has been a great conversation with Angela Scapello of the Scapello Group. Um, She's involved with nonprofits, for-profits, women in security, women in business, And it's been an absolute pleasure, my new friend. Thank you so much. It's been a real honor to be in conversation with you.